Welcome to FMC Radio, your officially unofficial source for all things Free Methodist. From in-depth discussions with key FMC leaders to daily updates during events like General Conference, we want to keep a consistent stream of information flowing to you regarding where God is leading the Free Methodist Church. I'm your host, Josh Avery. We want to invite you to sit back, relax, and join us on this journey as we learn what it means to be Free Methodist in this episode of the FMC Radio Show. Episode 5 today. Can't believe we're already at 5. It seems like we just got started and we're already 5 episodes in. Well, hopefully everyone had a great Easter yesterday. Um, Whether you went to the service or you took part in a service, maybe you preached at a service, played on the worship team, maybe you were attending a service, whatever it was. Um, Hopefully you celebrated yesterday in some way, spent some time with family maybe. Today, we have a great guest from the Junia Project, and she's all the way from California. Her name is Kate, and uh, I am so excited for you to hear from her. I always say I'm so excited for you to hear from whatever person I have on, but it's because I'm excited to talk to them, and then I'm excited to share them with you. So today, we have someone from the Junia Project working to establish uh, essentially equal rights for men and women as it comes as far as far as ministering the gospel so i'll let her talk more about that and and you listen to that in a moment let's get into a new segment which would be our voicemails segment um we haven't had any many calls come in yet until this week again if you want to call the voicemail you can call 914 fmc usa1 No one's going to be able to answer that phone call. It goes directly to a voicemail line. So when you call in, don't expect to talk to anyone. Just leave a voicemail. You can comment on anything you've heard in the shows. Um, You could request something. Um, If you, uh, there's so many different things you could do. Just call in, comment on the show, leave us, you know, your thoughts. Um, um, Add to the discussion that you hear. you know, any anything that you think of, you can call the voicemail. So today I want to play two voicemails that I got um, on the voicemail line. The first is from a guy named Travis Edgar, all the way from Pennsylvania. Good morning, Josh. This is Pastor Travis Edgar uh, from the Glen Street Free Methodist Church in Pittsburgh Conference. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. I just uh, had to say that you guys, uh, you, are doing a great job. Um, I really enjoyed the podcast, uh, the, the interviews, the questions. Uh, the people that you've had on have been very interesting, very helpful, uh, very inspiring. Um, and I think that's kind of what you're going for here is to inspire us to do more, uh, to um, to play out our stories that Christ has given us, to live this life uh, as he intended. So I thank you for that. Um, again, fantastic job. But I've got to ask, uh, I've known you for a while, so I've got to ask, when can we expect an interview with Bob Goff? And will it be live from Tom Sawyer Island in Walt Disney World? Hopefully that's coming soon. God bless you, Josh. Um, I love you guys. Uh, Fantastic. And keep up the good work. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks, Travis. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. I'm really hoping that everybody's feeling the same way when they listen. I hope that they're encouraged and challenged in different ways by the different speakers um, that we have, the different um, uh, people that we've been interviewing, uh, a lot of different viewpoints, a lot of different ways of thinking of things, and also ways of doing things. I think of Bishop Roller, um, ways of doing a sermon that was very different. And I think of the the um, interview that you're all about to hear today. It's going to challenge some people who listen to it um, on the way that they've thought about men and women and those kinds of roles. It certainly um, has made me think about a lot of things as I've listened, as I had that interview with her a few days ago. Um, also, Bob Goff, yeah, he's a great guy. Uh, hopefully, we could uh, do something with him at some point. That would be great. Now, we have a second voicemail. You may never have heard of the guy. His name is Travis Ed- <laughs> Travis Edgar. Yes, it is the same guy. He called back twice in, in one week, but he has a little something different to say. Um, here he is. Hi, Josh. Uh, this is Pastor Travis again. Um, I was driving home from our Monday Thursday service. And uh, I was thinking about how you had uh, recommended the new Switchfoot album, uh, or all the Switchfoot albums. Uh, And it got me to thinking about how, when I was um, in high school and all that, 
my favorite band was Reliant K, uh, and they still are. I love to look back and, and listen to the songs that they, they put out. Um, and they recently put one out, a song called Look On Up, and I thought I would recommend it to you uh, and see what you thought. Basically, this song is about, you know, making sure that we're not focused on our phones all the time, focused on the, the screens, um, and make sure that we're focused on, you know, the sky and the beautiful things that God has made for us. Uh, and the chorus, just real quick, is, uh, I look on up to the sky, I wonder why I put a filter between beauty and my eyes. I look on up into your eyes, it's time I put down my devices and I start to live my life. You know, that is such a powerful chorus. So... The, the rest of the song is awesome. Uh, I thought I would recommend it to you uh, since you recommended music to me. Uh, again, you're doing a great job with the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for answering God's call that, that he's put on your heart to do this. Uh, and I pray that you continue to do it. And uh, I ask that God blesses you as you do it. Uh, again, thank you so much, man. Uh, I love you guys. Bye. Yeah, Travis, actually, uh, Reliant K is my probably my second favorite band right after Switchfoot. I know I recommended Switchfoot to you last time, but uh, my second favorite band of all time is probably Reliant K. And so in the show notes, I'll actually put a link to the song that Travis was talking about, Look On Up. I would definitely recommend that song for you to listen to, really get you thinking about some things. I think if you, you look at it and you read and you listen, you read the lyrics and you listen, um, but if anybody else wants to leave a voicemail for the show, any sort of comment, any sort of follow-up, um, anything that you want to bring up, please do call 914-FMC-USA-1. That's 914-362-8721. Well, secondly, today we have our Recommendation Monday segment, and uh, it's a good follow-up to Travis's voicemails this morning because what I have... Um, is uh, I want to recommend a book to you, and you may have heard of this guy. Uh, if you haven't, you just heard his name said in one of our voicemails, Bob Goff. Um, speaking of, I said my favorite band um, last week being Switchfoot. This is probably one of my all-time favorite authors and one of my all-time favorite books. A guy named Bob Goff wrote a book called Love Does. If you ever go to the store, look for it. It's a blue book with balloons on the cover. Um, should be easy to find in most bookstores. Um, not only Christian bookstores, but you'll find it at Barnes & Noble. Pretty much any bookstore you can go to, you could probably find this book. And, and what to expect from Love Does. Um, this is a guy who, if you... If you've never read the book and I were to tell you some of the stories, you would say, is this is this fiction? Is this nonfiction? You know, you wouldn't know if it's true or not because it, it's so crazy. Bob lives this crazy life. And really what ties it all together is that he believes that that love does stuff. Instead of just talking about it, this is one of his, his biggest quotes. He says, after a while, love gets tired of just talking about things because love does. And so it's just about getting out and doing stuff, and it's about his life. So every chapter is a different story of something that he's encountered, something that he's done, or uh, something he's experienced in his life, and a lesson that he's learned from that thing. But these stories are not your average, everyday, just devotional stories of, oh, that was a cute thing. It's just it's unbelievable stories, almost every single story in the book Love Does. I'll give you a few examples, and I don't want to give too much away, but Bob Goff is the kind of guy, when you read his his book, you're going to find out about when he snuck onto the set of National Treasure 2 with Nicolas Cage. If you remember that movie, he actually snuck onto the set. Um, he uh, kind of accidentally became the consul to Uganda. There was a whole long list of things, and through a weird process, he became the consul, America's consul to Uganda. And then he was turned away from all these different um law schools when he was younger and he, they just kept saying, I'm sorry, we're not going to accept you, not going to accept you. So he sat outside a dean's office every single day just saying, Dean, I know you have the power to let me in. Just tell me to buy my books and I know I'll be into your, into your law school. So just say those words. And he got into law school just by sitting outside of the dean's office. So that's just a very small sampling of who this guy is. And I think the best way to describe Bob and, and his book is that in the final page, there's an about the author page. You know, most books have that little insert that say about the author. It gives you a little detail. But he wrote this little section. He said, essentially, that 
he, he realized the older he got, the more closed off he got, and he didn't spend a lot of time with people. But the older Jesus got, the more accessible he became, the more he was around people. So what Bob decided to do, and his publishers first told him this was not a good idea. A lot of people told him it's not a good idea, but he said, I'm a lawyer, sue me. So he, he had this great idea that in the final page of the book, he would print his personal cell phone number on the final about the author page in the book. And honestly, if you go down right now or you go on Amazon or wherever you get the book, if you get that book and you look on the final page, you're going to see his personal cell phone number on that page. And this book this book went on to become one of, uh, it was a New York Times bestseller. And so um, he hasn't changed his number. He doesn't, uh, very rarely lets the calls go to voicemail. And so he answers almost every call that comes to his phone. And I, I've called him a few times and um, on the voicemail, I've left him, a voicemail one time and he called me right back. So if you want to talk to Bob, this is one of those authors that, you know, sometimes you have those favorite authors out there that you just wish, man, I wish I could talk to the guy and get his thoughts on something. This is one of those people that is very accessible to the point where they printed their own number uh, in the literally, literally in the book. Um, so it's all almost sounds unbelievable, I know, but it's all true. And this is a guy who doesn't just talk about things, but he actually does it with his life. And again, a very small sampling. I don't want to give anything away because some of these stories are better read than for me to just tell you about. But I would I would give 10 out of 5 stars. I mean, I would give over-the-top stars to uh, Love Does, and I would definitely recommend for you to check out that book. We're here today with uh, Kate. And how do you pronounce your last name? Wallace Nunley. Kate Wallace Nunley. Okay, I want to make sure I got that right. Kate Wallace yeah. Nunley, and she is one of the two founders. Is Am I right about that? Yeah. Okay, one of the two founders of the Junia Project. And so we're excited to have her here today to talk all about, um, well, primarily women, but not just women, women specifically. I think we're going to really focus on women in ministry today and leadership roles. Um, and for years there has been... Um, a lot of trouble with women being especially, especially head pastors. Um, you know, women have been allowed to work in churches, uh, lead the children, lead small groups, but uh, people have really had a problem when, in a lot of denominations, when women have stepped up into the bigger leadership roles. And so um, the Junior Project is, is working on overcoming those things. So first of all, um, Kate, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and just um, your history with the denomination and kind of how the how the project started and all that sort of background info. Sure. Uh, well, the Junior Project is a uh, volunteer community of men and women advocating for the inclusion of women in leadership in the church and mutuality and marriage. <laughs> and we function mostly as a blog at juniorproject.com, but we're also on social media and we do uh, events at various locations around the country. Um, and we started about four years ago. And uh, at the time, my mother and I were, neither of us were free Methodists. Uh, but we had come out of our own personal stories regarding um, uh, journeys with this topic um, and diving into egalitarian theology and uh, we decided that it would be a good thing to uh, start bringing us to the forefront of a conversation in the church. And um, at the time, my my home church had been backsliding on their position on women and leadership that we've had since I was a kid. Um, and I had been fighting that for about two years and was just tired. And I was like, God, show me where you want me to go because I feel like this isn't the place for me anymore. And I walked into... Foothill Free Methodist Church in Azusa, California, and uh, that's where I stayed. So since then, I've become a Free Methodist and um, started the ordination track along with my husband. And uh, my parents, actually, a couple weeks ago, also became Free Methodists at the same church. Um, so that's been really fun. Uh, yeah. We love the Free Methodist Church, and we're really excited about it. So, so yeah, that's that was about us. how many years ago was that then when you when you joined that church? Uh, I think I joined about two years ago. Two years, okay. Uh, maybe two and a half years, and my parents just joined uh, less than a month ago. But cool. my my husband's been a free Methodist for a little longer than all the rest of us. 
So how long did it take you? I mean, you were already in your other denomination. You were fighting for um, working through this issue. And so how long did it take you to really find out um, about B.T. Roberts and his role with the with women specifically um, and kind of doing the same thing that you're doing? How, did that take long or did your husband let you know about that? Or uh, Well, I actually, because we had been studying uh, egalitarian theology and diving deeper into it to write blogs on it, Virginia, we um, actually had come across, or Son probably sent us, uh, Ben Wayman's introduction to the new B.T. Roberts, uh, the new edition of his work on women, mm-hmm. and we loved it, and we got connected to uh, Denny Wayman through that, and, um, and he ended up knowing my husband, who at the time was like a brand new boyfriend, and um, it all kind of just <laughs> grew from there. Okay, great. Yeah, well, I, I've heard you say this phrase a few times, and some people listening may not know what it is. When you say egalitarian, what does that? What's the definition of that? Yeah, so right now in the, especially in the evangelical church, there's a a debate on the role and place of women, and the two main views now. There used to be a third, but really the two main now are complementarian and egalitarian. And complementarians would say that God created men and women to be equal, but were intended to have different roles. And mm-hmm. that those roles mean that women will never have authority in the church or the home, and men will always have the final say. Um, and egalitarians, on the other hand, which the Free Methodist Church would fall under, uh, believe that God created men and women to be equal, and that roles and responsibilities in the church and home are given based on gifting and calling, instead of on gender. That's kind of the main difference. So we, we really uphold the egalitarian theology. Which makes sense. Yeah, okay. Okay, so um, when it comes to specifically the, the Junia Project, um, what first of all, the name. I mean, that's what most people are going to ask about first. They're going to say, well, what does that mean, Junia? Um, so tell us a little bit about Junia, why the name the Junia Project? Yeah, um, and I know sometimes over podcasts it's hard to understand. They probably say it quickly. So J U N I A, Junia, um, and Junia is a, a character in the Bible who's listed in Romans chapter sixteen, verse seven, and she is listed as um, prominent amongst the apostles. And throughout Christian history and tradition, her apostleship and her gender have been questioned. And we have extra-biblical texts from the first few centuries that talk about her being a woman and being an apostle. So we know that she was a woman and an apostle. But then later on, uh, people started looking at that and thought, well, there's no way. You know, women aren't apostles. We, that, we probably got this wrong. Well, we're going to change her name from Junia, which is a familiar Greek feminine name even today, to Junius with an S, uh, which mm. was not a male Greek name back then, and nor is it today, uh, but to try to make it seem like she was a man and to change the pronouns to male pronouns. Mm. Um, and then uh, somewhere along the way, further closer to where we are today, people looked back at their original manuscripts and said, oh, no, no, this is Junia, this is a woman. And then they decided, well, maybe in some translation we'll say that she was noted to the apostles, or well-known to the apostles, instead of being an apostle herself. So even today, her story um, is kind of a one of uh, a lot of contention, uh, and women, we've found, really identify with it, because it brings out that debate of, um, uh, can women really be seen in leadership roles, or when they are, uh, is that questioned, and is that... Uh, look down upon. So we really thought her story embodied what many women go through in the church. So we thought, why not name our uh, our blog after that and and reclaim it, reclaim her name. Yeah. So are there so are there current um, translations that feature both sides of the debate? I mean, like, could you? Is there one that? KJV goes with the guy aspect, and then, you know, are there certain translations out today that that are, that we can look at and see these two different sides? You know, there are. Um, I wouldn't know them off the top of my head. I do know that the King James kept 
tuning it as a female. Okay. So that's one of the ones that keeps her gender, at least. Right. And the English standard version, um, I believe, is the main one that keeps her as a man and as language to say um, these men were known to the apostles. It's not in the original. Hmm, they add that. Okay. Um, and, uh, but various different ones, um, and depending on when the translations were revised or not, I know the NIV had a lot of extra male pronouns that aren't, um, of course, in the original manuscript, and they tried to take a lot of those out in the 2011 uh, rewrite of it. So uh, I can definitely send you, I don't know if your show has show notes, but I can definitely send you, uh, there's lots of online resources. Right. Um, they can also be found on, on our website under Who is Junia. Oh, cool. They have a lot of that info in there. Yeah, so we'll definitely put some of that stuff in the show notes that people can look and see and do their own research because and that's something that I'm going to be teaching here at the Rescue Mission soon in terms of um, exegesis versus eisegesis. And that idea, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, um, that's just the idea that eisegesis is you have a certain opinion about some issue and so you find different verses and you just read them at face value and say, well, look, this backs up my belief. An exegesis would be you look into commentaries, you look into the original language, and you study it, and you find out what that meant to the original hearer um, and what it was originally meant to be. And so that's what I'm going to be teaching soon here at the Rescue Mission. And in that, these kinds of passages, that's why you can have these uh, arguments, because, yeah, some people just read it, just, just pick up say the ESV or pick up the NIV and they just say, oh, look right here in this verse. But what they're not realizing is that's a translation that um, has come over time. And so, yeah, those those things can arise. Um, so so in this, um, and, and actually we'll get to some of those things in a little bit because there's some questions um, that we have that we're going to talk about specific passages today. But before we do that, um, now that we've established who Junia was and the Junia Project, so we can, and we kind of get an idea of what the goal is. It's um, and and if you heard it earlier, Kate said it's men and women working together. So I, I think maybe when people first hear about this, they say, "Oh, well, that's." a movement where it's just women, you know, fighting for other women, or they get some idea that, you know, it's just women doing, have, you know, wanting more power. I don't know. They have these ideas. But it's men and women working together to create this equality, especially within the church here. Um, so how are, in these ways, how are you accomplishing these goals? Yeah, uh, so you really hit it uh, the right spot there, Josh. That's a... Um, um, exactly what we're about. We really think that it took both male and female to represent the image of God, and we want the full image of God represented in our church leadership. We think that is the way God designed humanity to work, and we would love to put our best foot forward in that. And um, we have a lot of writers on our uh, volunteer rotation, and a good number of them are men, um, and they're men from various positions and uh, places in life, uh, anywhere from students in college up to uh, administrators and uh, church leaders. Um, I know Larry Bachemeyer from the Free Methodist Church has written for us, and uh, we we love it when our, when our brothers come and write because uh, this isn't a woman's issue. Um, if it was, I think it would have been solved a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But um, for a lot of church history, it's, it's been men who've been in charge. And um, and that's just the way our, our patriarchal world has shifted. But for really, uh, this is really about teamwork with men and women. And not pushing men down, but giving everybody the tools to really see how to work together as men and women as a team um, in mutuality and serving one another instead of uh, instead of creating a hierarchy. So we write blogs on it and we share that um, on social media. The, the idea behind the blog was to take these kind of academic or very academic ideas about egalitarian theology and take just a little nugget of, of it and turn it into an everyday kind of conversation style on the blog. 
um, something that uh, normal churchgoers can interact with and understand. Um, I think when we started blogging, uh, there wasn't much of that on this topic, where there were really a couple uh, individual bloggers that blogged under their names that um, that talked about these things well. And other than that, uh, Christians for Biblical Equality was doing great work on the academic side, but there wasn't really normal conversation about it. So we really, really, we really wanted to put this into normal conversation and uh, put it in front of people on their phones and on their tablets and on their computers to make it a normal part of their life so that it wasn't um, a taboo conversation so that they could feel like they could really interact with it. Yeah, and I think um, that's something that it seem, seems to me has actually happened. And within, it's only been around for four years, you were saying, but in even just doing a little bit of searching, not typing in anything about the Junior Project whatsoever, but even typing in specific verses, um, uh, one that we're going to talk about later on, um, one of the ver- biggest verses that Paul talks about where he says, I do not permit a man to have authority over, a, or a woman to have authority over a man in a church. Um, that verse, even just searching that verse brings up like the third or fourth result is an article from the Junior Project. So um, yeah. <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, obviously that, that first of all, you know, like you're saying, it's, it's, it obviously doesn't have a bunch of stuff out there. There's not a lot of stuff out there to, um, like, there's, you know, it's not like there's 500 different groups talking about this issue. Um, and secondly, that, you know, your uh, the Junior Project has really obviously um, risen um, up with just within these four years to be um, considered someone knowledgeable, a group that's knowledgeable on the topic and, you know, um, a part of the conversation because it's showing up in those results so, so, uh, close to the top. Yeah, and and it's been kind of a crazy ride, uh, and very encouraging to see. Because when I started, like I said, there wasn't a lot of talk on these conversations at a normal level um, that wasn't super academic. And now, four years later, um, there are so many people blogging about it. And um, and Christians for Biblical Equality, they're really the um, cornerstone of good theology on egalitarianism, and they have since also come out with, like, a very, very well-run and written blog, um, and it, it just kind of exploded. I think um, I think we're seeing a wave of change in on this topic for women in the church, uh, specifically the evangelical church, so that's been kind of exciting yeah. <laughs> to see all these different people come up and write. So there's more, and I think um, I think we'll see that rise more to, uh, to prominence as these voices get bigger. Yeah, and I think with anything like this, um, we, um, there are people who are um, ha- have obviously an opposing view, and so I think whenever you're entering into a discussion like this, if you're out there, you say, "Well, I don't agree with with what's being said so far." Well, when you're going onto the website, when you're listening even to the rest of this interview, when you're when you're thinking about this issue, um, you have to come into it with an open mind. With anything else, you need to be first willing to listen. With anything in life, you have to be able to listen and then do the research for yourself. Um, look into this and, and and read the things that they're saying. I mean, don't just write it off or. Look for things that you, that you have wrong, so you can get your list of why you don't agree. But read it with an open mind. Um, same thing with, um, as we mentioned last week, the Free Methodist Conversations um, website. Now there's a whole section with articles over there on women in leadership, um, and so you know even over there, commenting and having discussions with people. Don't be afraid to um, ask your questions. You may have a question. You say, "Well, I don't really fully get this." So ask the questions. Talk to people. Look up the commentaries. You know, really. Um, again, make this a conversation instead of just, um, you know, solidifying where you're at. Um, so in that, in those, in those people that have, um, oppositions, we, I had a few, um, questions from different people that have that opposing view. Um, and so ask a few of those today. The first would be, um, 
if a woman is ex exercising authority over a man in a head pastor role, and she's a married woman in this example, um, how would her husband still have authority over her at home as the leader of the household? Because a lot of people have that idea that the man is the leader of the home, and so if if then he goes to church and then his his wife is the main pastor, well, how does that is, does that role clash? Is that role still held up at home? What what's your thoughts on that? Well, there's a, there's a few thoughts that come to the surface uh, just when I hear the question. Um, the first is, uh, where in Scripture does it say that the man is the leader of the household? Yeah. I would also ask, where in Scripture does it say the man is the leader of his wife? Because surprisingly to many people, that language is actually not in Scripture. Uh, that comes from places in Scripture in Ephesians and First Timothy, sorry, First Peter, that really go into... Um, the man being the head of the wife. And that's the language that's used in Scripture. And so I think what we need to remember is in that, um, in that phrase, this assumption that Scripture teaches that husbands are to lead their wives, that that's actually just, that comes from, that teaching comes from someone's interpretation of what Scripture means when it says that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. That's mm -hmm. someone's interpretation. We're letting someone put words into our mouth and saying that it's there in Scripture when it's not. Um, and one of my favorite uh, theologians is Gilbert Dozikian, and he taught for a long time at Wheaton College. He's one of the foundational egalitarian theologians. And uh, I, I got to spend some time with him a couple years back and meet with him, and he said, he, he's getting older now, but he said, his latest uh, research was showing he was going into, you know, husbands aren't just called the heads of, first of all, they're never called the heads of the house. They're called the heads of the wife, which is an important distinction. And they're not just called the heads of the wife, period. They're called the heads of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. But he thought, well, let's look in all the places in Scripture where Christ is called the head of the church and see what that means. Because we're assuming from a Western American viewpoint that the word head means leader or leadership, like the head of a company. Mm -hmm. But not all languages carry that connotation with the word head. French doesn't carry that. There's no connotation of leadership in their word head. And that's Philadelphia's first language. And uh, he argues that Greek is also another one of those that doesn't carry that connotation. So we mm -hmm. have to look at the context. What does Scripture say? that how, how Christ is the head of the church. And he walked me through every single passage in the New Testament that talks about Christ being the head of the church. And every single time, it refrains from any language of authority, and it never says over the church. It says for the church. Um, but in other places, Christ is the head of other things and is placed over them. Interestingly enough, that never happens with the church. So Christ is only called the head of the church after he's died for her and given himself up. Sacrifice and death are the things that mark Christ as the head of the church. And I think that's a really important distinction because I think that's followed up in the conversations about uh, what husbands are called to in Ephesians 5 and really talking about that sacrifice. Um, husbands are not just said, it doesn't say you're just the leader and you have to take up responsibility and you've got to make all the decisions. It doesn't say anything like that. It talks about sacrifice and service. And the whole passage in Ephesians 5 starts with uh, a statement on mutuality, that we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands, and then, and then um, the stuff towards wives, and then husbands love your wives, which is his interpretation of how you're supposed to submit. Um, so I, I think that would be the first thing I'd say, that we've kind of misunderstood this idea of headship within our Western view, and we've imposed that on Scripture. Uh, so egalitarians would believe that you're supposed to have mutuality in marriage, not leadership, and that husbands and wives are better at different things from each other, and that's going to change from couple to couple. So maybe a wife is better at finances than her husband, and she's going to lead their marriage in that. And uh, maybe a husband 
is better at uh, cooking and managing stuff within the house. So he's going to lead their marriage in that. And if they have a disagreement on something that one of them has a better uh, understanding of, then maybe that person leads them in that disagreement. Um, but uh, so that's the first part of that question. Yeah. Uh, we wouldn't say that the man is the leader of the household. So uh, the second part then would be if a woman is in the head pastor role, um, then yes, yeah, she would be the head pastor of her husband. Just as if a wife was, a, if, a, if a husband was in the head pastor role, he would be the head pastor of, of his wife. Um, but again, I, I think focusing on the rules of authority and hierarchy is not the point. I actually think as we read uh, in the Gospels when Jesus' own disciples argue and want argue and want to be the, um, the at the right hand and at the left hand of Christ, to have the most prominent positions in Christ's kingdom, to have the authority. And Christ says, you don't even know what you're asking. In this world, uh, the rulers and the authorities exercise authority over one another, but it will not be so with you. Mm. And whoever wants to be first must be last. And whoever wants to be a leader must be a servant. Yeah. And the whole New Testament preaches that, that if we are focusing on who has authority and who doesn't, and who is the final say and who doesn't, and trying to structure everything around authority, we have missed the point of a God who gave us all authority to become like humans and die for them. And I think, I think that's really the key here. Even looking at a pastor, I think a pastor is really a shepherd more than an authority, and we need to keep that in mind. Yeah, I, I, uh, some, I was saying a lot of different things when you're talking about that, but one thing that I, I think of is I guess we need to define, um, not us necessarily, but each each person listening to this, you need to define what, what do you, when you think of leader, how do you define that? Because, you know, what Kay was just saying, she's talking about defining leader from a servant uh, perspective, which, you know, the world wouldn't think of it that way, um, but that's the way that Jesus came to show us. But even in that, you know, you, you think of, of, of that idea, that classic idea of a man leading the household, a man leading the the wife, whatever. But even in those examples that she just gave, I mean, one of those is true with my life. I mean, um, in in different areas in my my life with myself and Chris and my wife, you know, I lead different things. But also, she she has recently really been interested in finances and she's doing really well with that stuff. And so now she's set up a budget. She's done these things that traditionally, for some reason, I don't know why, there's always been a thought that oh, that the finance is, you know, that's for the guys to take care of. But somehow she is so much better than that, that she is leading that area. And so it's, you know, in that area, she's great at leading and I'm great at leading another area. And so it's working together. Um, so I think it's, again, we just think of, of when we when we think of leader, we have to define what do we mean by that? Because if, if someone you're married to has a much better skill set in, in an area, you don't have to just say, well, but I'm the leader, so I'm going to, I'm going to do this. It's, it doesn't make any sense, and you're actually going to suffer for it. Um, right. So those are some of the things right. I was thinking of when you were talking, yeah. Um, let me look here. Let me see what I have here. Um, okay, so here's a second question here for you. Um, since the majority of denominations that, that we know of throughout the world would oppose women's ordinations, um, how can we be certain that all of those groups who oppose it are wrong in their beliefs since it's a majority-held viewpoint? That's the second question I had from the opposition there. Yeah, um, I think there's a really big assumption in this question. Uh, we don't have great stats on on the makeup of uh, pastors around the world. Um, and certainly in America and in the West, we have, uh, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention is one of the bigger denominations, and they have majority male leadership um, after they had banned women from that in 2000. And, um, but they're also the fastest dying church in the world. Uh, but reports coming out of the global south where Pentecostalism and holiness denominations are growing, uh, they're the fastest growing church in the world, they're actually saying there's a lot of women leading that maybe perhaps the majority of pastors coming out of that tradition are female in the global south. Uh, similar reports come out of China, 
in both the underground church and the state church that are being established that the majority of church planters are female. Um, so I think we need to be careful of imposing our idea that because we're the West, we're the most progressive in some areas, uh, because I think that's, um, it's not exactly true, especially when you look at female heads of state that have, um, uh, different places in the world, especially in Latin America that have had female heads of state, and yet we have not, I think we're actually behind on a lot of this stuff, um, as the world moves ahead. So that's the first thing I would say, um. But the second thing I'll say, even if hypothetically that was true, that uh, the majority of denominations would oppose women's ordination, um, I would say the majority of denominations were pro-slavery for a long time. And the verses that they used to support slavery were many of them from the same exact chapters of the verses that are used support women's subordination today. Mm-hmm. And we would read those verses that talk about women and say, yes, that applies today. And then five or six verses later, if it applies, to, if it talks about slaves, we say, no, that doesn't apply today. So I would say we would need to uh, go back and make sure we're being consistent in our scripture and do our homework and look at the context and do all the work we did about slavery and do that again in the verses of women. Um, because even if the majority of churches were pro-slavery, they were wrong. It didn't mean that because the majority of people thought it, that it was correct. Yeah. Um, so I would say that about today, even if the majority of the churches did think women should be subordinate, uh, it doesn't make, make them correct. Um, and uh, I would also say our tradition, the Free Methodist tradition, Wesleyan Holiness tradition, has always upheld uh the, the equality of women in various ways and uh, maybe not as well as we had hoped all the time. But, you know, going back to the Reformation, you see Quaker women preaching and teaching and traveling as evangelists. Um, and all these Wesleyan Hornish denominations after the Reformation uh, really allowing women to thrive in ways that the culture around them didn't. And I would say lean on your heritage. Don't give in to the pressure just because you think that the majority of people around you might disagree. Yeah, that's that's similar. You kind of almost even answered the the next question I was going to ask because I've actually heard this not only in a question that was submitted to me before the interview, but I've heard people say this many times in discussing this issue. They say, "Well, you know, you don't really see this trend happening of 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 women." trying to be ordained or trying to become leaders in this way until the 1960s with the women's rights movements and you know all of that really spurned you know after women were allowed to do certain things now now the next step is they want to do this so it was it's really you know people say well it's really you can kind of look back and see it it all really started in the 1960s and you know the 70s and that time you know, really before that no one was really interested in it because you know they for whatever reason, but kind of, I mean, you almost answered that question already and to say, well, going back even further, you can see um, there were women teachers, there were, you know, uh, women traveling around as evangelists, there were these different um, people. I don't know if you want to speak more to that or not. Um, Oh, yeah. Um, You know, uh, I think Christians have a really big blind spot when it comes to some historical movements and feminism would be one of those. even the idea that feminism started in the 1960s is false. Um, my background is political science, and so we uh, had to study social movements that were political, like the Civil Rights Movement and the Women's Movement. But the Women's Movement officially started in 1848. Uh, back when women weren't allowed to vote in this country, we didn't get the right to vote until 1920, um, and that was only white women. Um, who uh, were wealthy. Uh, So we just had a lot of... um, uh, There's a lot of ignorance in in that statement, and I think it's easily fixed by a quick look at history. Uh, Feminism didn't start in the 1960s. It started in the 1840s, and uh, it was started by Christian women because Christian women were the ones who uh, had the audacity to say that God speaks through me, shouldn't I have the right to vote? Um, so if I can get up and preach the Word of God, why can't I get up and vote? Um, 
So you already had this large movement of women who were pushing to preach, who were pushing to travel as evangelists, and who were pushing to be missionaries, and were already doing that. That's even within the Southern Baptist movement in their history. The great uh, missionary boom was mostly women. And, and then Christian women started feminism, because they thought if we could have the right to vote, then we can change things like child labor, and we can get rid of alcohol, and we can make sure society shapes up and is good for everybody. Uh, so, so feminism didn't start in the 1960s, but egalitarianism, we can trace back to the early church and really boomed after the Reformation, and, which would be 250 years before the start of feminism in the United States. And uh, you see all of these, we have documents upon documents upon documents of women writing saying, you know, was I not created in the image of God as well as the Holy Spirit not also dwell in me? Can I not also speak for God? Um, saying this 250 years before feminism started. Um, and then I would say, uh, so, so I would really say the feminist movement is not infiltrating the church. Women's equality is, a, is God's ideal that infiltrated society. Um and I think right now we're seeing, we definitely are seeing a push of uh, uh, more women getting ordained, which is partly because more women are getting educated. And um, we really are seeing a lot more women going to seminary and now coming out with the training that has always been necessary for many denominations. So we are seeing a lot more women do this. And I think our, our culture is finally catching up also with uh with the egalitarian theology, and they're like, yeah, women should be able to do all these things. Um, but the funniest part about that question is that complementarianism actually started in the 1980s. Uh, mm -hmm. And in, in their Danvers statements, um, they actually say that it's a, as a result of feminism. So you have a lot of people saying that uh, egalitarianism started as a result of feminism in the 60s, but actually the opposite is true those who were pushing for restored gender roles from, you know, our culture of the 1950s and before, uh, they were, uh, they actually started in the 1980s, and, and they say that they're doing it because they're worried about the rise of feminism. So this most recent push for complementarianism uh, really is very, very new. And before that, we mostly had patriarchy, which just said men are better than women. God created men better than women. So this idea that uh, it's kind of like patriarchy light complementarianism is uh, saying, no, no, men aren't better, we're all equal, but we're going to keep all the roles that patriarchy had for us. Um, but yeah, I actually, uh, I get that question a lot, uh, very often. I think, I think a quick look at history shows the false in that question, but it's, uh, it's common enough that it's worth repeating, definitely. Yeah, and I was thinking when you say that, I was thinking about how I think a lot of people have um, skewed views of when you hear the word feminism, they think of a, a certain person in the news or on a YouTube video or something, some per, some woman with a sign and they're like, you know, they hate men and, you know, it's like all these over the top characters right. of what feminism is in the same way that you know, if we were to, uh, an atheist were to look at Westboro Baptist Church holding signs at, at soldiers' funerals and they say, well, you know, that's what Christians are like. They're all, you know, hating on gay people and they all hate X, Y, and Z. We would know, well, that's not yeah. true. In the same way, you know, example. yeah, there's that's this negative example. connotations with, with that word feminism, but it, it's kind of a skewed view of what it really is it, to to the average, to the overall. It's not as extreme as you've seen on those, you know, videos or you know, people who women who hate men type type standard or whatever. Um, so totally. let's um let's look at um one last question here in terms of like uh, opposition stuff, and that is. Um, just looking at a specific passage that we mentioned earlier, um, Paul talks in 1 Timothy 2, he specifically says to Timothy, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. So if, if that was not to forbid women in leadership or women pastors, what would that, what does that mean? What is that about? Yeah, um, so 1 Timothy 2 
uh, is is an interesting passage, um, and many women in the church uh, kind of their their <laughs> their blood pressure raises when that when that passage gets brought up, um, and mostly because that that passage has been used as a weapon against us. Um, it has been used even by very uh, uh, well thought out and well-meaning Christians uh, who do look into the context and the original language of other passages but think that this one doesn't need that work and that it's simply clear um, and that we uh, and, and it's used even without explanation. I have some friends who have um, applied for pastor roles or youth pastor roles, associate pastor roles, any of that and have simply gotten a uh, response that, these are women friends simply gotten a response that just said for Timothy 2.12. Wow. <laughs> um, and these churches don't even think that they deserve the dignity of a response. Wow. Um, and so, so this passage is really one, when we talk about this passage, we're talking about more than the passage. Uh, so it carries a lot of weight. Um, yeah. But because of that, uh, we think that at the Junior Project, we think it's one that really needs to be talked about. And I think, I think we have maybe six or seven different posts on this topic, and they are our most read posts. Um, and because there's lots of different, uh, there's lots of different things about this. For one, as, a, as uh, a pastor from the Wesleyan Church has pointed out, this is one of the most disputed passages in all of Christian history. So you have these very, very highly intelligent uh, theologians on, like, seven different opinions of what this passage even says. So we have almost no no um, agreement amongst uh, scholars on the specifics of what this passage says. Uh, and one of the problems is with this word that's used for authority in that passage. So so the passage says, for Timothy 2.12, um, uh, sorry, I'm looking at it, 2... Thing of the passage. Okay. Mm-hmm. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over man. She must be quiet. And this word for authority, assume authority over man, uh, is not the common word that Paul used when talking about church authority. It's the word often pain, and it is found only once in scripture and very rarely in any extra biblical text. Um, and it is mostly associated with aggression. It can be translated as domineer and usurping authority. But the word that Paul usually uses when talking about authority is not this one. And because it only occurs once, that's part of the big debate. Um, There are issues with um, that word. There are issues with with the grammar in the sentence, believe it or not, where lots of people are arguing with... um, different ways that Paul puts the sentence together and implying that it doesn't have the meaning that we think it does in English. Uh, there are contextual issues, which I, uh, I find very enlightening. Um, so a lot of scholars believe that this letter was written to Timothy when Timothy was at the church at Ephesus. And, um, and at, at, in Ephesus, it was very popular to have Artemis worship. The Temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the world, and it would have been uh, in uh, Ephesus. And Artemis worship, this goddess worship, was really led by women, and only women could be priests. And um, they had uh, very distinct ways of uh, showing that you were a priestess in this, and it was a very uh, dark kind of religion where... Um, sexual things were happening, and um, Paul did not want his church to be associated with that. So it is believed that, um, oh, and some of the things that you would tell a woman was a priest there, they were saying they would have braids of hair, and that they would adorn themselves with very expensive jewelry. And so what many scholars think is happening here is that you have an influx of these women who in that day are not highly educated, as the majority of people wouldn't have been, but especially mm-hmm. women, and yeah. they're coming from this culture where where it is taught things like the feminine 
side of the divine is more important than the masculine side, and that um, the woman was created first in creation, and the man was created second, and the fact that she was created first means that she has authority over the man. And you look at First Timothy, and you see, you know, like, Paul's addressing these issues. So if you have this influx of women into the Christian church, and they come with all of this knowledge, thinking that this is how it is, and Paul says things to them like, um, you shouldn't braid your hair. You shouldn't adorn yourself with expensive jewelry. Uh, Adam was created first, and then Eve. Um, you see him saying all this stuff. Uh, that really seems like the context of what's going on is at play here. Um, and I, I've uh, talked to a few people about this, saying I feel like our our culture is doing kind of the opposite, where we value masculine. Us. We value uh, men above women. We think men are just, you know, slightly better than women at most things. Um, we think that because Adam was created first, he had authority over Eve, and we think that that means that all men have authority over women. And we are letting this patriarchy of our culture influence our faith. And I think it's having the negative effects that I'm assuming it was having at Ephesus, the Church of Ephesus. Um, but moving beyond that, uh, what I really think it comes down to with 1 Timothy 2.12 is this, this verse is so disputed, it doesn't seem like good theology to make probably the most highly disputed verse the cornerstone of how we function at the church. Um, especially when you look at it in light of Paul's, the rest of Paul's ministry, where he puts women in charge of churches and thanks them for their leadership and works with women and talks about other women were having their own uh, ministries going on, like Chloe Florence, and, uh, you know, we have Phoebe being a deacon and delivering probably the letter to the church at Rome, what many think, and uh, you see that Paul didn't exclude women from his ministry and worked alongside women, and you see Junia as an apostle, Phoebe as a deacon, uh, Priscilla as a great teacher who taught and corrected a man, and I think we see that if you look at this one verse through the whole of Scripture, it gets put as maybe Paul was dealing with a specific issue at a specific church. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at all of Scripture through the light of this one verse, then you start skewing things to try to fit this verse. Um, yeah. So that's that's kind of the first Timothy 2.12 in a nutshell. Um yeah, um, I, and I, I'm thinking of, you know, one thing that I always think that, that doesn't make sense that people don't seem to have a very good answer for whenever I ask them, you know, in that same, in those same verses, in those same passages, talking about, they hold up that verse and say, well, you know, a woman should not be a pastor because of this verse. But right in those surrounding verses and, and what Paul talks about, he says, um, things that you brought up, so that, you know, women shouldn't wear jewelry. Essentially, um, they shouldn't. They should keep their heads covered. Um, all these different things that we don't do now. So it, it doesn't seem to right. add up to me, you know. I, and I've asked that question, and nobody seemed to have a very good. The, the proponents of this specific verse don't really have very good answers for well well if we're going to do that why are we not doing everything and now i know there are some extreme churches that do do that um some women who do some churches where women do have their heads covered and and do these things um but um for the most part the denominate the main denominations that are or churches that are that are very set up on this verse that say women cannot come up and be a part of the leadership in any way um are not following these other verses so it's just not making any sense and and it kind of points back to if if that's what's going on it kind of should alert us that again that idea of eisegesis that maybe we must be reading something in here because otherwise either this whole chapter has to do with um um regulations on on the church service or it doesn't either it's cultural or it isn't i mean you can't just pick and choose certain things that you want so um it has to be that Every single thing you do, again, has to be exegesis, and we have to look at it. Um, no matter what side of the argument you're on, um, you have to look at this, these passages, and you have to ask yourselves these kinds of questions, um, and often read arguments from the opposition and say, okay, well, 
based upon the true meaning of this passage, what are these people, you know, is this argument correct? Um, and so that's what I would, you know, I want to encourage everybody to do a few things. I mean, of course, go over to, um, is it just juniaproject.com? Yep, that's it. Okay, juniaproject.com. You can see all sorts of articles there. I've already mentioned, um, as I said, the um, um, fmcusa.com slash conversations where you can enter into conversations um, there about women in leadership. But also, I would recommend um, looking at a book that um, Kate mentioned early on, which is B.T. Roberts' book. B.T. Roberts is the founder of the Free Methodist Church. Um, and he wrote a book called On Ordaining Women. And there's a newer version um, that has an introduction of, of a modern day guy. Um, so, so this is a book written um, several, quite a little while ago. But I, I have read through it and it's not too hard to understand. Sometimes those older books can be. But this, I think you'll be able to understand. He breaks it down. He covers all the issues. Some stuff which isn't even really um, applicable to today that you don't really hear the arguments of. Um, today, but he covers every issue we've talked about and many more, um, Old Testament, New Testament, um, cultural things. Um, he covers all this stuff. And I'm sure a lot of those topics as well um, have been talked about in different articles and, and at different times over on your website as well. Um, yeah, and, and I think one of the, maybe I should have started with this, uh, one of the things to keep in mind when you're looking at a verse that is highly is or any verse, is to look at its context, even just within Scripture. So a whole book of First Timothy starts with this idea that we need to live peaceful and quiet lives. And the men are told to be quiet, to stop arguing, and to instead to be quiet and raise up hands in prayer. Then women are told to be quiet, <laughs> to, yeah. stop, to ask your questions at home instead of making them in church, and to be quiet. And uh, quietness throughout Scripture is held up as a, a tenet of the life of someone who follows the God of Israel. And it's brought up throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as something to be aspired to. Um, and something, so it's not specific to women in, in general biblical teaching. It's actually specific to the people of God. Um, and then to say, you know, so we believe this is one of Paul's letters. Well, that's interesting because Paul didn't just write one letter with instructions about how men and women are supposed to interact with church and then send it to all of the churches. Mm -hmm. He just didn't do that. He wrote to specific churches and specific cultures who spoke specific languages and lived in a certain time and dealt with the issues that they were dealing with. He wasn't setting church culture for all time, for all churches, or else why wouldn't he have just written one letter and said it to everybody? There seems to be a situation going on in this church, and uh, he's, it looks like he's trying to instruct them on how to do it, and it seems like the women aren't the only ones who need to be told to be quiet because he also says it to the men. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good point, and I, I read about that before, but I forgot about that. That's good that you brought that up. Yeah, um, yeah and there's so many, That's again, that's just we have to, we can't, any passage, any passage in any topic in the Bible, don't just read it and just take it at face value because, again, it was not written to 21st century people living in America or wherever you're living. It was written to a specific time period um, in all these different areas, and they understood, they completely understood when they read that passage. They understood all the passages that they were reading because they were in that culture, but we have different a culture right now, we have a different, you know, everything's really different. So, you know, um, it takes a lot more work to do it this way. Um, but a lot of the things we read in the Bible, we ne really need to step back, get commentaries. We need to um, look and see what was going on, What the not just that verse, but the bigger picture of the book. Then you go bigger than that, the culture, what was going on around them. There's so many different factors um, to take into when we're looking at especially harder passages like this. Um, but do you have uh, anything else that you have uh, today that you'd like to, to talk about or share? Um, no, I, I really wanted to say thanks for having me on. and uh, yeah. It's been such so much fun, like such a great journey um, coming to the Free Methodist Church, and I'm so glad I found you all. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, my husband and I are so excited about what the Free Methodist Church brings that we are uh, 
a part of a church plant, a free Methodist church plant here in Bakersfield, California, called Wellspring. And uh, we're just so excited to, uh, we, we had our first service last week, and we're excited for Easter this coming week. And uh, it's just been, it's been so fun to go on this journey uh, as a free Methodist. Yeah, so I, I won't give anything away, but one thing I must say, you mentioned Easter, and we're recording this before Easter, but when you listen to this, it will be just after Easter. And one thing oh. I think you need to go and look at is, uh, I posted a link to it um, on Twitter and on Facebook, but if you haven't seen it yet, there's a an article about Mary Magdalene, and many people assume, because you've just been told or you saw in a movie that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, and, and nowhere in the Bible does it actually say that. It reminded me of the Mandela effect, like the, you remember the Berenstein Bears, that's actually the Berenstain Bears, but like it's not real. So there's these things that people remember. They're like, yes, I remember 100% Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, and she never was. It doesn't even exist. So they have an amazing article on there um, that I posted that you'll have to go check out about that as well. That Because it, speaking of Easter, a lot of people talk about that because she was one of the first to be at the tomb. So um, if you've just heard about Mary Magdalene or you read that story in the, in the resurrection and you've thought – she was a prostitute. Go over and read that article, The Five um, Things About Her. I think you'll definitely find that interesting as well. So, um, Well, thank you very much again for coming on. And um, I will put all the links to all your stuff in the show notes. And I, I will say this one thing. Um, in preparing for this, there's only one thing I'm disappointed of of this interview. I, can you guess what that is? I bet you can never guess, actually. I don't know. Oh, no. I <laughs> no, so I read the about page and I read that you went to a school in the UK and I'm really disappointed that you don't have a British accent. I was really looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm a California girl. I was just a transplant over there. <laughs> okay, well, other than that, it was a good interview. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Well, thanks for having me on, Josh. Yeah, definitely. Thanks a lot. And, um, and uh, let us know. Uh, I'm